This is the Westwards podcast, a fortnightly production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. Western Sydney is located on the traditional lands of the Dara, Gunungurra and Tharawal nations, and we acknowledge and offer our respects to all Indigenous people and to their Elders past, present and emerging. Opinions and views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the Westwards organisation. If you'd like to ask questions, offer feedback or simply learn more about what we do at Westwards, please visit westwards.com.au. All right, let's get on with the show. Welcome to today's Westwards podcast. Uh, I'm James Roy. I'm the producer at Westwards, and I'm sitting out here in the uh, beautiful outdoors of Wedderburn with uh, Chris Donahue. How are you, Chris? I'm really well. So you're um, you're new around here. Tell us a bit about that. What, what's your job? What are you doing? Well, I've been taken on as the associate producer. What have we got you doing? Still. <laughs> Um, got me looking after three or four programs. I think I've lost count at this point because mm-hmm. um, I'm still in the in the the blissful, um, overwhelming first and second week of being in a new role and getting my head around that. Um, and I'm handling all the social media and all the looking at new ways for us to use um, our wonderful online platforms. Yeah. Well, so if in fact if you as a listener are listening to this for the first time that may well be because of you chris yeah it may well be (laughs) because we really want to get our listenership of the uh, of the podcast up um so further to that if you are listening to this right now smash that like button and hit the subscribe button and all those good things that you're supposed to do with social media um the other thing i was going to say you're also kind of fortunate that you live quite close to here so you've got a drive of nothing yep so you're <laughs> i've been driving for an hour and a half by the time you even get out of bed i think because mm-hmm. i'm coming from the blue mountains well i have two small children so yeah, you, yeah, you've got to get there and go single single mum she does get out of bed rather early just so i can have my moment of sanity with that's my a, that's a two point. dogs that's a fair point um what sort of dogs do you have i have they're both mongrels proudly yeah and um one is, they both got Kelpie in them, they've both got um, Staffy in them, they're both psychotic in the best way. Um, very jumpy dogs. I just, yeah, they're, they're medium-sized mongrels. Medium. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, so welcome. I'm going to talk to you in a minute about, uh, about what you do and where you've come from, what your background is, because... Um, You've taken over from Harja, who worked with us for a couple of years, and all the best to Harja in her future pursuits. But uh, now you're here, so I'd love to hear a little bit about what uh, what your interests are and, and what you bring to to us. But before that, we have our usual tradition of the quote of the day, and I haven't told you what this quote is yet. You don't even know who it's about yet. This is what I like to do. I like to throw you in the deep end. Today, it's Matt Damon. Wow, I didn't think he was quotable, but hey. 
Matt Damon turns 50 today, so happy birthday, Matt Damon. 50? Oh 50. my god. Oh, right. That still makes looks, us old. He still looks about 18, but that's, you know, I've got on him. Um, He'll hit puberty one of these days. One of these days, yeah. You know who has actually just, in the last maybe three years, gone from being, oh, he's never going to get old, to actually looking old? Who? Johnny Depp. For yeah. so long he was just like this sort of Peter Pan dude and now suddenly he's like, oh, he looks really, really worn out. I think the red wine and painkillers are doing the heavy lifting. <laughs> I think there's a... Yeah, I think you're probably right. Yeah. Um, so, Matt Damon, for those who haven't been paying attention, uh, doesn't need a lot of introductions. One of the most bankable movie stars in the world, apparently. Uh, he wrote a hit... When he was quite a bit younger, he wrote a hit movie with his best friend Ben Affleck, which was... Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting, yes, indeed, with the... Sadly departed um, Robin, Williams. Robin Williams, yeah. And Goodwill Hunting won him a, a, non, a nomination for Best Actor. Yeah. But it won, won the Best Screenplay Award for the Golden Globes and the Academy Awards. So yeah. it was pretty impressive for a couple of young guys from Boston to kind of just knock out this, what's well, actually a pretty fair, fair film, isn't it? Something that was written in a hotel room over a really short amount of time if we're, the story is to be believed. Yeah, well, that's right. And, you know, often these stories aren't to be believed. There's a bit of a bit of mystique that goes into the kind of selling the story, isn't it? But, but um, I don't know if you know, you, you probably do know this story because you're pretty well versed in film and so forth. But remember that scene from Saving Private Ryan when, and he's Private Ryan. Remember that scene when they finally get him and they find him and they say, We've just gone through this horrible stuff to collect you and take you home. Do you remember that song? Yeah, I do. Do you know how that came about? No. Well, I'm going to tell you. Do tell, James. <laughs> apparently, <laughs> apparently everyone else in that scene, Tom Hanks, all the other people in that platoon, they'd all been doing boot camp, mm. like serious, hardcore, you know, out of bed at four in the morning, waiting through barbed wire and mud boot camp. And they were just... They were really hardened but exhausted by this, so that they looked the part. Matt Damon had been in a hotel. <laughs> and they told him that just before the scene. Oh and so no. that look of resentment and, and loathing that comes from those guys, it's entirely legitimate. <laughs> That's awesome. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. A bit of, bit, of, bit of method directing. I, I like that. I like it. Anyway, so here's his quote. And, you know, you've raised questions about how quotable he is, but I, I, I think there's something here. He says, the very first big photo shoot I ever did was with Bruce Webber. I couldn't believe this guy was taking my picture, so when he told me to get in the bathtub, I just did. It's only now, looking back, that I realise you don't have to do everything people tell you. Discuss. <laughs> From the perspective of a creative person. I think it's probably pretty on point. I was having this discussion with somebody else um, only yesterday, actually. Right. And that is the amount of things that you do early career, in any career actually, that you look back at and you're like, oh my goodness, I just could have said no. <laughs> <laughs> and some, in many cases should have. <laughs> Not every case though. I mean, there are these sort of lucky moments where you do sort of happen to jag yourself of an opportunity through doing something that... Oh, absolutely. Second thoughts about. But I will say, like being a woman specifically, particularly in the entertainment industry, there's a lot of, you know, I witnessed, particularly in the music industry, a lot of um, girls putting themselves into situations that they never would have put themselves into. Mm. 
and they obviously weren't comfortable with because they're very young um, and yet they found themselves there in the midst of it and definitely didn't have the the position or agency to say no mm. so it, it's not just little things it's it's those big things as well that I'm sure live with them forever really it's not quite the same as Matt Damon getting in a bathtub is it it's pr- there's a bit more white a bit more um hinging on what you're describing exactly well maybe he didn't know how, how um didn't know the gravitas of what he was saying in your little quote <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah i mean we were talking about this and we were also talking about this idea of uh, just um i think on tuesday monday we were talking about no tuesday we were talking about the uh the way artists are expected to do certain things to pay their way mm. and you know what we were talking was about was something a little less sinister and that was just being asked to do things for free oh absolutely to get yourself ahead yeah and do you think that even if we were just looking at it in that sort of rather more innocent light do you think artists feel pressured into doing that definitely especially when it's you know it's like I always say, begging for crumbs. As artists, quite often you feel like you are begging for crumbs because there's so little paid artwork. Um, and I say that broadly as in the whole of the arts. There's, there's so little paid work or well-paid work mm. that you're quite often desperate. Mm. And I mean, that's that's not putting it lightly. You really, yeah, yeah. You really are desperate and you really... Yeah, we always talk about this, particularly in uni, um, and particularly in the age of digital digital work, is that people are often tempted to um, put more more hours into something than they're being paid for, because quite often with arts jobs they tend to be love jobs, um, and heart, you know your interest comes from your heart the the job is actually bigger than just the job and they're not you. always jobs that you can just sort of you know five o'clock on a wednesday afternoon or friday afternoon comes around and you just sort of turn your computer off and you can come back on monday and pick it up there's sort of well i mean when, last, we, when we do our art last often, night i was sitting on a sitting on a zoom call with one of our with one of our reading groups mm. it's time i'm not getting paid for but yeah. it but I have an interest in the success of that group and I have an interest in getting to know the people that are in the group. And I was quite more than happy to do it mm. um, and had really good conversations. And, and, you know, I mean, there was massive positives in that for me, but that's just an example of things that, especially in this modern era of work, but I know even, you know, from I've worked as a dancer, you do so many hours outside of what you're actually getting paid for. Um, and and, and um, lawyers would call those billable hours. But oh, you absolutely. Can't really, can't really pull out the billable hours. Well, line. could you imagine if we we like <laughs> charged for rehearsal time and charged for <laughs> and overtime for being on a weekend? And oh all my goodness! <laughs> yeah. All the one o'clock in the mornings that you pull. Yeah. I've got another quote here that sort of feeds back into this in a funny sort of way and and the idea that yes it is uh, something that occasionally as an artist you go I feel that I have to pursue this because this is my dream this is where I want to be so I kind of have to give ground in that way because that dream is to be a practicing artist right? right 
And I remember just before I get to the second quote, um, when when my first book was uh, being edited back in the mid '90s, uh, Gary Crew, who was my editor, he kept making suggestions, and I just ticked them all off and said, "Sure, sure, sure." Mm. And then with my second book, he said to me, "So are you actually going to push back on anything I say this time?" I said, what do you mean? He said, I didn't say those things because I needed you to just do them. I was saying those things to you because you wanted, I wanted you to think about think them. about them. Right, yeah. exactly. And he's and I said, but he said, what were you afraid of? And I said, oh, I was. I've always I've wanted to be a writer since I was eleven. I said, and I was frightened that if I pushed back and said, no, Gary, that's not what I meant. You mm. would say, you know what? Screw this whole process. I can't work with you. And he said, I never would have said that. And I said, well, I know that now, but at the time, my there was so much invested in what I really wanted to achieve. But that comes back to what you were thinking of in the first place of, of not knowing in the beginning. It comes back to Matt Damon's quote, mm. just not knowing that you can push back. And I mean, it's funny for us as writers, as part of the editorial process, it's really important that you do push back on mm. those things that you feel like you feel strongly uh, integral to what you're um, trying to express on the page. And you're not always right, but sometimes you are. And of course, well, that's what Gary said to me. He said, um, there will be times I will say, what about this? And if you come up with a decent explanation for why you've done it that way and say, no, I, I did it this way because, mm. he said, I'm just gonna go, okay, that's fine. I, I just I just needed you to think about why you'd made that decision. Absolutely. Like I had, I had some times last year that when I was doing, I was doing my honours down at the University of Wollongong um, and I was working, I was looking at, because um, I'm part of the African diaspora, so I was looking at African diasporic writers, I was writing my own collection from that position and I had two supervisors that were both um, white Australian supervisors, really well versed in their subject areas, but um, still not holding all the knowledge of my subject area that I was trying to write from. Um, and also not party to the sort of cultural um, and social capital that I was party to. Um, and so it was really interesting from that point of view where when I was writing my poetry collection, we would definitely come through, and even when I was writing my thesis, we would come through a lot to many, many points where um, either one of them would stop and go, oh, are you sure about this term? Are you sure about doing this? Blah, blah, blah. Um, because they were coming from where they were coming from, which I think is really valuable for me to ask those questions and well, to tease out. Since you've got a readership that you, you can't make. Absolutely. Yeah, so I mean, from that perspective, it was actually of more value because we were, I was forced to kind of tease out those terms and start asking how important things really are or how they need to be um, set up better or right. explained. So I mean, yeah, it was, it was more valuable as a process because we have that back and forth all the time. Yeah. Well, let's get to this last quote because it's we've sort of strayed a little bit from where I was headed with that. But we'll take a, it's actually from C.J. Ramone, who he was the bass player from the Ramones. From the Ramones, oh my goodness! Um, and in fact, everyone in the band was called someone Ramone, but they weren't their real names. His real name was Christopher Joseph Ward. But funnily enough, 
Johnny Ramone was born on the same day, but several years earlier. Oh, Isn't wow. that freaky? Anyway, that freaky. this was his quote. Um, and he wasn't in the original band. He, he was a big fan of the Ramones. Big fan of the Ramones. He went along to the audition. He said solely because I was going to jam with my heroes and I had no expectation of getting the gig. So I relaxed, had a great time. They said, you've got the gig. But he said this, it was going from being in the pit, getting slammed from every direction to playing on stage. My first gig, I actually had the urge to jump into the audience because I was so used to being down there. <laughs> I did have a way of tying that to the last thing, but it's completely slipped my mind. Now. It's just a nice quote, though. Actually, no, I remember what my connection was going to be. Just that, again, as, as somebody who, any decent writer or creator will have been someone who was a, an observant and invested audience member at some mm. point. And, you know, sometimes as a practicing artist, that's what you need to pinch yourself about and go, wow, I'm actually on the stage now. I'm not in the mosh pit anymore. But you can't, I don't think you can forget what the mosh pit is like either. Although, I don't know about you, but after doing so much education around writing, it definitely changed reading for me. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, I think my ability to be in the mosh, pot, <laughs> mosh pit of reading is somewhat changed yeah I can, I can see the, I can see that point yeah for sure well yeah I think it's important as, as artists that we kind of and this is what the advice I often give as a writing teacher I'll say when you do an edit this first edit you might be looking for structure the next one you might be looking for punctuation mm. grammar you can't do it all in one run but one of those edits has to be trying to put yourself entirely in the mind of the reader the Absolutely. first time reader yeah um, get back in the mosh pit there you go anyway so tell us a little bit more about about yourself and and your background and, and what what you bring okay um well I was a Western Sydney girl from the very first so I was born in Parramatta on the land of Baramatagal people um, I grew up for a little bit in Maryland's West um, and there used before, to be a good Ethiopian restaurant in Maryland. Well, did there? Yeah. <laughs> there was only one Chinese restaurant when oh, I was really? there. Wow. Yeah. And and I remember I went to school with a girl named Angela. I still remember. She was very nice. I liked their family. Then I moved out to the outback, and then I've lived down the south coast in Canberra. Mm -hmm. um, went to Bomaderry High School. For any of you south coasters out there. And then I moved up to Sydney and I've been a practicing artist, well, since I was a teenager, I used to travel up on the, on the train. Avid reader, grew up without a TV, so, you know, reading was my candy. Um, and I've been writing poetry since I was six years old. I had one of those lightning strike moments where I had to write something down and I've still got books and books of poetry that I've just written since I was little and I write. I'm one of those people that emote on paper um, and I still emote on paper with a pen because I like to write. Old school. I like yeah, it. no, I really love it. It's, and you can do it anywhere. I mean, exactly. Can... I do it quite often out in the bush or out in my garden. And so then I was um, working corporate work during the day, but I was dancing more than anything because I'm an actor, but because I was um, 
biracial, so African-American, Cherokee, Australian. Because of my appearance at the time, I was getting more dance work than anything else. Because, yeah, the entertainment industry was still very closed, um, a lot more so than what it is today. Apparently, we didn't eat KFC or anything like that. We just um, danced in music videos. <laughs> well, there's actually a really... Sorry to interrupt you. There's a really cute... Have you ever read the book... Um, Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie. No, I haven't. Okay. It's a young adult novel by Sherman Alexie, who's, um, who's Native American. Yeah. And he lives on a reservation. And it's largely autobiographical. He lives on a reservation desperately poor, like incredibly just dirt poor. And, you know, his father actually dispatches his dog because they can't afford the medicine. Like, it's really grim. But he's, he's bright and engaged and wants to learn. And so... His parents go, look, we're going to find a way to send you to the Catholic school in town because the school on the reservation, no one gives a crap, and that includes the teachers. So, you know, and so they put him in the Catholic school in town, and they go, you'll fit in there because you'll, everyone wants to learn at that school. And, of course, when he gets to the, the Catholic school, he's the only Native American kid in the school. Mm. But, you know, similar to what you were just saying, they go, because you're not white, you are therefore black, which means you must be good at basketball. So he suddenly finds himself <laughs> injected straight into the basketball team by virtue of not being a white guy. It's, I really recommend it. It's a fantastic book. Um, you'll read it in about half an hour. It's quite quite short, but it's really stunning. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you. you That's all right. Um, and where was I? You were not eating KFC. You were dancing. That's right. I was mm. dancing. So um, I ended up running the original hip-hop dance school in Sydney and that was because my then partner um, was really really well-known dancer from the United States um, and then and I was still doing like all my other work like I was a typical Sydney actor which meant that I had a you know a plethora of different jobs like studio coordination I was running audio studios I was I was a vocalist, so I was I was singing for different acts. Um, we were part of the Olympic Arts Festival, the Bujari Festival, supporting um, Brenda Webb. <laughs> um, what else did we do? We did like Sydney Biennales, the Sydney Festival first night. So we were doing really, really high-end gigs, and then we were doing lots of school gigs, like mm. heaps and heaps of school gigs. That was the bread and butter. And the key is the lots of gigs, which sort of brings us back to what we were talking about a minute yeah. ago. Yeah. Just the sheer amount of work you have to do. Well, it was really funny because after um, I broke up with my partner and I ended up out here and I had left all his business things on a, on a disc, and so he was having to do his own work now. And he's called me up and went, oh my goodness. I'm like, what? He's like, I just can't believe how much stuff we've done. And I'm like, no, until you actually look at it, you can't remember all the small gigs that you picked up Absolutely. on the way through. That, but of course, of course, we were chasing work constantly. Um, and we were busy, like, all the time. He was working all the time. I was working like dancing nights, dancing weekends, picking up ads, all that sort of thing. Um, and so we ended up um, having our first child, relationship breakdown, and I, and well, I should say I used to live in Bondi for 12 years, which I loved. 
Um, and after the breakup, I ended up out here in Campbelltown because mm. my mother is out here. And so I had to introduce myself to a whole new community and I got really involved um, with women and domestic violence because that's where I was coming from. Um, I got involved in a lot of, it was a really, really low socioeconomic um, community that I moved into. So I started doing heaps of volunteer work and because I speak really well, I was quite often called upon to start voicing um, what was happening in the community and what, what were the, um, the gaps in services, um, particularly with reference to child welfare. Mm. Um, and I got really involved in the schools out here because I've got kids, so yeah. that, that was just kind of a natural attrition, um, especially when you're a really community person, which I am. And then um, I had done a little bit of a degree um, and so I thought I was going to take the opportunity while my children were still small is to finish my university education. So I went to Wollongong University, which I loved. Um, and it's just down the road and I only had to drive through the bush every mm. morning. It was lovely. And I did um, a Bachelor of Communications and Media in Journalism and Professional Writing. And I did um, Bachelor of Arts in Creative Writing. And last year I did honours in creative writing, so creative arts. So I've now got three degrees <laughs> under my belt at a ripe old age of 40 or something. Yeah, so it was just a case of formalising mm. formalizing something that I already did as a part of Yeah, and that's what know, often happens with, it sounds like a, a slight, doesn't it, but the mature age student. Yeah. That we, I, I did my own. Um, tertiary degree in creative writing not that long ago and there were a few people a little bit older than me, a couple much older than me and then a room full of people who <laughs> younger what, than my 18? kids. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, yeah, but you, you come at it from a different angle, they were coming at it from this is what I feel like I need to learn and I was going, I've been doing this for a long time, now mm. I just want to kind of formalise what I know and fill some gaps that I, you know, so doing screenwriting and poetry and that sort of thing. Anyway. It's a, yeah, horses for courses, a whole um, tertiary thing. It's quite wonderful though, because when you go into it as an older person, I find that um, you're very intentional with what you do. Right. Um, you're there for a reason. You're there to take the information that you want. Um, and when they say, what do, you, what do you think your thesis or your dissertation is going to be about? You go, well, I've always wondered about this. And you very quickly know what you want to explore, don't you? Absolutely. So, I mean, well, that was the case with mine. Mine was just um, due to my life journey and due to growing up in Australia as a person of difference. Um, identity was a huge, huge issue in my life. Um, and so it was only kind of, it took me a while to get my head around theoretically what that was, what that was or how to talk about it. Um, but that's what it became. It became um, looking at things through a decolonial lens and um, focusing specifically for me on the African diaspora, um, which was fantastic because it's a gap in academic work in Australia. We don't have a hell of a lot of um, work or published authors for that matter that are from the African diaspora. Because a lot of the, a lot of the African diaspora work in the United States would be 
of people who have been, you know, their families have been in America for generations perhaps. Oh, whereas, of course. whereas the Australian African diaspora is often first, second generation because we're the first, the first sort of stop from, from Africa if you're heading this way, aren't we? Yeah, but I mean, interestingly to me, as is, was my discovery is that um, Africans have been here there's been proof of Africans being here since the 12th century Caliphate where they found coins from the, on the Wessel Islands. Um, so trade was going on pre-white um, settlement right. here. And uh, according to Cassandra Peebus's book and subsequent study, there were um, Africans and African-Americans on the first fleet and on the second fleet. And I didn't realize that Pennant Hills was called Dixieland because there were so many black people there. Wow. It's quite hilarious because I'm there going here. I lived in this place for so long um, and yet I never knew. And part of that was um, growing up African. I was reading one of the stories and she'd done her DNA and they were Australian going all the way back, but she was actually had African background in her and she ended up being one of the granddaughters, I think of, um, I think it was Black Caesar. It was either Black Caesar or Billy Blue. She right, was one the, of them. The, the bush but, ranger. Yeah, yeah, but they had no idea. So That's funny. we're I've here all... and we've been here. It's mm. just our stories haven't been told. I've always thought that what Penn and Hills was lacking was um, a good jazz club. You know, and, and <laughs> there's lots of car dealerships, there's some pizza places, there's KFC and Maccas and a few, but there's no, no good Dixieland jazz yeah. dive, is there? Yeah, I mean, no. That, maybe we need that. No. Okay, so thank you for, um, for chatting with me that, and, and welcome thank to, you. to Westwards. We're looking forward to working with you. A couple of quick news items before we wrap up. So the first one is... Uh, the Pinarolo Illustrator in Residence. Uh, Pinarolo is the book cottage in Blackheath run by Margaret Hamilton. And uh, <laughs> we have settled on a successful resident and her name is Elizabeth Stewart. She's from the South Coast. Marimbula, in fact. So ah, the, yeah, all the way down. All the way down. And um, well, it would have been probably quicker if she just went to Melbourne, but nobody's doing that at the moment, are they? <laughs> no, they're not. No, but Elizabeth's um, working on a, a lovely little book called... The Goose is out, which is um, going to be fun. So she'll be, we haven't set on a date for her, but she's going to be going to Pinarolo and working with Margaret uh, on some mentorship for that picture book. So congratulations to Elizabeth. Uh, the What Matters uh, competition with all the schools that entered that, uh, courtesy of us, the Whitlam Institute and Western Sydney Uni, three of those schools are receiving uh, author visits. And so I'm happy to say that. Abbotsley will be having Tamsin Janu. These were drawn at random from the shortlisted uh, students. Uh, Meriden is going to be getting Tim Harris and Kayama High is getting Buri Monty Pryor, who was the first oh, nice. Australian, um, one of the first two inaugural Australian Children's Laureates and a, a good friend of ours here at Westwards. Indigenous writer from, well, I think his, fam his family originally is from Magnetic Island, in fact, up, up in Townsville. Lovely guy, great storyteller, and Kayam is really excited to be getting Buri visiting virtually from Melbourne to talk to them. Great storyteller. Um, I've seen him make people look like numpties by, in, in, by insisting that everyone, including the principal, get on the floor and act like a frog. It's fantastic. <laughs> if you can do it, why not? If you can do it, why not? Exactly.
Uh, and the biggest number of entries from this was Hurlston Agri Agricultural College. Oh, Hurlston wow. Ag, which is Glenfield. just up the road from yeah. where we are right now. So congratulations to them for everybody putting in those. those. And the, I guess the interesting thing about the What Matters um, competition is it's not just a short story. Or it's kids writing about stuff that's really important. So the stuff in there about... Yeah, social matters and sociology matters and ecology and environmental and of course global health has had a big run this year as well. Mm. So it's kids writing about what's important to them. And we would do well to listen to them, I think. I think that's probably pretty clear. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, and um, just finally, one of the jobs that you have, Chris, is to be one of the judges of the... And this isn't a way of inviting people to send you inducements because we, we frown on that at Westwards. You're going to be one of the judges for the Merrill, the Blacktown Merrill Prize. Yeah. You've got 370 entries for that. I'm so excited. <laughs> so if you're one of the people who send in one Lucky of the Lucky I entries, write to, like to read. They like to read. Uh, some of them are quite short. So, um, yeah, if you want to send inducements to Chris, um, that's fine. It won't make a scrap of difference, but we'll enjoy drinking whatever you send us. <laughs> So thank you once again, Chris, and uh, we'll see you in about a fortnight on the podcast. Not you, Chris. I'm talking to the, the listeners <laughs> now. And as we always say on the podcast at Westwards, happy creating. Bye.